Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we are joined by Marshall Long. He is a longtime Bitcoin miner, and we are excited to get his perspective on the industry. Marshall, thanks for joining us. Hey, Nick. Thanks so much. Man. Of course. Marshall, tell us your Bitcoin story. How long have you been in Bitcoin and when did you get into Bitcoin mining? Sure. So I've been in Bitcoin mining. Uh, that was the first thing I kind of dove in on. Uh, started in late 2010, <clears throat> November. So this will be this November. Uh, it'll be my 13th year in Bitcoin. Um, was always kind of curious about uh, technical things. Um, you know, I'm not a developer by trade. I, I taught myself developing, engineer by trade. Was working on some projects with some friends at the time, and uh, they're like, "Hey, man, I found this nerd money online you can find with your computer." And so as a longtime video gamer, I was immediately interested, had no idea about economics or all the good that Bitcoin can provide. And so I immediately set to uh, figuring out how to mine Bitcoin with my computer. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL. Why do we love River? River is a Bitcoin only exchange. They offer lightning network deposits and withdrawals. And most importantly, guys, they do not outsource custody of their Bitcoin and customers' Bitcoin to a third-party custodian. River has its own multi-sig custody solution. That means that it is not using some other company to store Bitcoin that is purchased within their platform. So make sure you go check them out, river.com slash TBL and learn about River today. When you got into Bitcoin mining, as you mentioned, it was uh, based off of your home computer, uh, a long way away from where we are today. Talk about the evolution of Bitcoin mining over the years. When you got in, uh, all you had to do was have a laptop on. So give people a perspective that might not know how basic Bitcoin mining might have been back there and how complex it's it's become. Sure. So way back, you know, you, you could, as you said, mine it with the laptop. And in fact, I, that's where I started um, and then quickly moved to my gaming computer and then from CPU based mining into um, GPU based mining using graphics cards. And then from there, there was a short period where uh, something we called FPGAs were, were in the mix uh, and then f soon followed by, I guess, the current paradigm called ASICs which are just little shoe boxes effectively that can only mine Bitcoin. They don't do anything else. And so the current paradigm of ASICs has been around since late 2012, early 2013. Uh, and now, you know, back in the day, if you had ASICs on two to five of megawatts of power, you were a big deal. And now, you know, there are companies and operations with hundreds of megawatts, um, all running effectively shoe boxes built to mine Bitcoin. It's a fascinating evolution. But as you mentioned, we got into an ASIC-based uh, mining race at over a decade ago now. So uh, the, the era of the laptop going into the graphics cards with regard to Bitcoin mining was essentially pretty short-lived. So Marshall, talk to us about the scale of Bitcoin mining around the world today. You mentioned that there are facilities that are using over 100 megawatts uh, but there are also mom and pop miners as well. So tell us about the difference there. And can can small players 
still compete in an era of publicly traded miners. Yeah, so here's the beauty of Bitcoin mining. It is, in my opinion, the world's most perfect competitive free market. So anybody that has access to internet and power can do it. You don't have to ask anybody, you can just do it. Question is, can you be competitive with the big dogs? The answer is yes. If you've got excess energy, if you've got stranded energy, um, let's say you live or you work in an office building and uh, the power is included, you can mine at a profit. Um, you're not going to you know, make hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but you can mine um, profitably given you have the right set of circumstances at your disposal. Even go deeper into the basics for people that might not understand that with a warehouse of miners and a publicly traded stock with the ability to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, how does somebody with one person compete? And what I'm trying to get at is explain mining pools to someone that might not understand how a single machine run in with excess power in your office building might actually be able to earn you hard currency uh, in the form of Bitcoin. Sure. So the, the big guys have really two advantages over you. They have the ability to negotiate a large equipment purchases um, at a better price than you. However, because they use so much power, they have to also commit to pre-purchasing power. And so you're not going to be able to get 100 megawatts at free. You're going to have to negotiate with a retail electric provider, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and depending on your unique circumstance, depending on where you are, uh, for instance, if you're in Kenya and you know you have a friend that runs a, a hydropower plant, you should call them and say, hey, let me run these for with you and we'll do a we'll do a revenue share or something. You'll be able to you'll have to pay more for the machine just because you're buying one, two, ten, something like that. However, your advantage is you have access to free power, whereas large players at scale cannot. And then when they have, let's say, free uh, free power and they have a few machines on, are they joining pools that are very centralized are there good decentralized mining pools how how would a mom and pop miner approach where to send that hash rate sure so actually all almost all large miners also use what's called a pool and a pool is a way for individual actors to aggregate their computational power called hash power together so that they can work together so when you're mining bitcoin as part of a pool you're not going to get 6.25 bitcoin every block you hit you might not ever hit a block if you're just a one one miner so what what the pools allow you to do is split the payouts along with the other contributors uh, to that network so you get more steady payouts now there's a few different varieties you can solo mine through something like ck pool you can join a, a pool that is um, that pays out when the group hits a block. That would be something like uh, Brains Pool. You can join a pool that prepays, like a Luxor pool. Um, the, the real consideration comes to the fee structures of these pools. Uh, and there's even new pools with new features coming out. Uh, Luke Dash Jr., a Bitcoin core dev, announced 
that he's uh, working on reviving his old Allegius pool, um, which is an OG pool from back in the day. And they've got some unique features uh, as well there. So it really depends on where you are. If you're in, you know, the bush in Africa, you probably want to use something that's a bit more technically um, advantageous to your ping because you're in the middle of nowhere. So you might want to use like Allegius or Luxor so that you, you don't have a lot of dropped internet traffic. Uh, if you're in the States and maybe you want to be squeaky clean and regulated, you might want to mine to something like a Luxor or a Foundry pool. Um, so there's a few different considerations there. Thank you for explaining to us uh, the nuanced nature of these mining pools and really the range of options that people have when they turn on their machine and they start you know, uh, running hash power. So Marshall, then you mentioned the bush in Africa, you mentioned Kenya, you mentioned stranded energy. Take us around the world, we'll go maybe continent by continent, and talk to us about the nature of Bitcoin mining in different places around the world, and maybe you can start in Africa. Sure, so um, I'll just speak about the places I've personally mined or personally been to operations. Um, so in Africa, this uh, I'm not going to say Africa at, at large. I'll say we'll start in Kenya, for example. There's a lot of uh, hydro energy that's being produced by local generators. That they're all private. The problem is the community that they are servicing is only using power four to five hours a day. Because most people, it's an agrarian culture, and you know most people are going picking tea or or tending to coffee, whatever. And so the generators are not able to sell power all hours of the day. And because they're made up of mini grids, there's no real-time settlement market like you have in the States. So if you're a generator and there's nobody turning on their lights, you can't monetize your power. Therefore, it makes a lot of sense for a private generator to partner with a Bitcoin miner by instead of dumping that excess power to the ground, they're mining Bitcoin and monetizing those off hours. And so that that's a really interesting opportunity. Um, take, for instance, Nigeria. There's a lot of flare going on. South Sudan, a lot of flare gas going on from oil operations. And those are just being burned. Some of that's similar in West Texas as well, where you know oil operators have to flare off the natural gas as part of uh, you know safety requirements. And so miners are coming and hooking up natural gas generators and then mining the Bitcoin. So those are those are some of the plays in Africa. If you move up into, um, let's say, northern Europe and Sweden, for example, there's not a lot of mining in Sweden anymore, but there is a ton of hydro in Sweden and not a lot of people live in Sweden. And so there's there's a ton of excess cheap. It's not free, but cheap power in places like Sweden. Uh, Iceland is another example. It's all geothermal. There's big data center providers there, one called Borealis that's been mining for years. Um, so those are those are more there's abundance and a lack of use. Um, and so instead of selling it for free, almost they're going in and monetizing it with Bitcoin. If you move into the states, there's all kinds of things, you know, the, the stuff in Texas. There's a lot of grid programs that Bitcoin miners can be involved in to help the Texas grid that can uh, they can help monetize grid stability and Bitcoin mine. Uh, it's a free market. So getting your power contracts a little bit uh, nuanced there. You got places like central Washington that are mostly hydropower um, that there are cheap rates for power. And then if we move on over to places like 
China, for example, which is now technically illegal, but there's still a fair bit of mining going on in China. Those are mostly what we would call nowadays guerrilla mining operations. So people who have, um, you know, skirted uh, the government and are, you know, encrypting their traffic to the pool so the government don't, doesn't know they're mining. Um, and there's, I, by my estimate, still five to ten percent of the Bitcoin network in China mainland. Um, in Southern Asia, there's there's more kind of what I call opportunistic mining, overbuilt infrastructure, places like Thailand. Where people are, you know, pulling their own power. Um, Malaysia is really interesting as well. Uh, Cambodia, there's some big power generation providers that are just mining their excess there. So it's all about uh, the the commonality between all these things is Bitcoin miners flock to inefficient markets where their efficiency of monetizing electrons can be plug and play. Now, explain to us about China. You say 5 to 10% of hash power you believe is still located there. Where does it show up? I've, I've read some things about uh, that it's showing up in some Central European country uh, statistics because of the uh, VPN maybe that they're using. Can you explain to us uh, that process and why you estimate maybe 5 to 10% and how you're able to get that from the data? Sure. So uh, that's less uh, public data and more just friends of mine that I know are doing it. Um, in China, there used to be huge deployments, you know, 200, 300, 400 megawatt sites. And those have been shifted. Um, a lot of them came to the States. A lot of them went to Europe. Some went to Kazakhstan, some went to Russia. Um, but there's still people who are running one to five and, and some that are even 10 megawatt operations in small warehouses. And they have partnerships with the different pools that will give them a uh, what's called a VPN tunnel to the pool. So it's encrypted end to end. So the government can't see that it's uh, this unique TCP traffic flowing from one location to a server. Um, and because of uh, it's just simply uh, I can't point to any oracle of source. I can just say that, you know, I have a lot of friends mining in China. So. Um, it's not as prolific as it used to be. It's a lot more under the radar. That's why I say it's it's more guerrilla mining. You know, I've got a buddy that's got a warehouse that I can, you know, give him a little bit of, of money on the side and and I can mine. So um, I think over time that'll start to um, wear off. But there's still going to be people who opportunistically mine everywhere. You know, there's people who can mine with solar panels in a forest somewhere. You're not going to, you're never going to kill Bitcoin. It's really hard to kill mining. Tell, tell us about Southeast Asia. You mentioned Thailand, Malaysia, and Cambodia. But what you're talking about is cheap energy, inefficient markets, or miners can plug and play. But what, how, what's the relationship between Bitcoin mining in those countries and Bitcoin adoption in those countries, if you can just step out of the mining shoes for a second, are those countries, I mean, we're familiar with some of the adoption going on in Thailand, but talk about those three countries generally. Are you seeing Bitcoin adoption on the streets, maybe from remittances or store of value perspective in those uh, nations? Yeah, I wouldn't say a lot of... Um commerce going on especially in cambodia and malaysia interesting part about malaysia is um and i'm going to speak a little bit out of my element here but 
Um, the way it was phrased to me is Malaysia is a predominantly Muslim country and Bitcoin is seemingly a very halal instrument for people to, you know, do kind of transactions with. So it's more of um, uh, it's an easier vehicle for people to operate within their their religious beliefs as far as like halal banking and stuff like that. So um, that that's the the explanation I've been given, but I would not say it's ubiquitous in those countries by any means. I think it's it's still a burgeoning uh, economy, especially in Cambodia. Um, the Cambodian example is mostly um, power generators that are looking to monetize off-peak hours. So it's not, you know, your neighbor plugging up a machine in his garage. Let's go back to the states now. You mentioned Texas, Washington. Talk to us about Bitcoin mining in the states and local governments because maybe i'll ask you the next question as well and group them together we're hearing now more and more that the bitcoin mining industry and electricity grids are essentially starting to merge we're in the early days of the mer of the merger of bitcoin miners and power generators and grids grid operators load management so tell us about what's going on in the states with local governments, local grids, Bitcoin miners, pro-Bitcoin local governments and economies, and how you see that playing out over the next five to 10 years and maybe even in political cycles. Because we know that on the national stage, it's, it's a lot of noise, but locally we can actually extract actual events, legislation, uh, business formations that are happening. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see kind of how those things have changed. So, you know, I was mining in Central Washington, 2013, 2014, and at that time it was um, it was a big struggle with the public utility there, um, mostly through our own negligence. You know, a lot of my peers we would use, you know, not so great power supplies, and it would cause noise in the lines, and you know, really give those guys a big headache. Um, so for a while, and I think even now in places like Grant County, it's still outlawed to mine Bitcoin because of our mistakes early days. However, there's a lot of people kind of uh, coming around to the, the power that a large flexible load that can respond in real time can have beneficially to a, a grid. So, you know, let's take Texas, for example. The, the reality is because there are so many renewables on the Texas grid, um, there are, there have been programs in the Texas grid called ERCOT that have allowed, um, people who can facilitate grid flexibility, um, to make money. So let me give an example. There's a program that has been in ERCOT since I believe 2011, maybe 2012 called controllable load resource. And it's effectively... A program that you could qualify for when the grid has an emergency for you to be able to respond quickly and efficiently as ERCOT tells you to. So basically allowing them to tell you, hey, turn your machines, turn your load off or on very quickly. That program has been around for almost a decade and only now as of the past, I want to say three or four years, has anyone been able to qualify for that. And the only loads that can qualify for that right now are Bitcoin miners and more recently batteries. And so the the reality is those incentives have been out there 
but you take a large load like a, an aluminum smelter or a paper mill, they take a long time to roll on and roll off. And you know, if you have a fire at a generation point um, at Comanche Peak, for example, it's a big nuclear power plant in Texas. If 1.3 gigawatts falls offline, that can cause a, a ripple effect of, of frequency issues on the grid. And it, those frequency issues, unfortunately, happen very quickly. And so it's it's it tends to be a cascading effect over a couple of minutes. And so if you're a paper mill, you can't respond that fast. If you're an aluminum smelter, you can't respond that fast. But if you're a Bitcoin miner, you can. And so the grid is actually being more stable and incentivizing operators to supply um, what is required at the time of an emergency. And so the now it's become very interesting because over the past three or four years, Texas specifically has had many problems and it's become so apparent that Bitcoin miners are helping and not hurting that you're seeing a lot of legislation going on. You're seeing folks like uh, the Satoshi Action Fund getting a lot of stuff passed in Texas, Missouri, places like that, using the winter storm as a test case and showing people, hey, this case study, here's the facts. And ERCOT as well has this data. And you're seeing a lot of state level, hey, we want this, we need this so that people don't freeze to death in the winter. Are there other case studies that are being cited along with the winter storm in Texas? Uh, yeah, I think the Satoshi Action guys have uh, cited one in Kentucky, uh, one in, uh, I believe, Georgia, and a few others. It's, it's all on their website. Excellent. So where else in the nation uh, are you maybe the most optimistic that can become the next place of extremely pro Bitcoin mining legislation and maybe just a cultural understanding of what Bitcoin mining has to offer grids in general. So the first thing that you need in order for that to proliferate is a free market grid. So uh, there's not all grids are free market. Um, ERCOT in Texas is one. Another really good one is PJM. So that's Pennsylvania and the surrounding areas. They have some interesting things and there's good actors like uh, Stronghold. They're, they're a generation uh, company as well and they mine Bitcoin and they're showing PJM like, hey, we can provide on-demand power just by turning our Bitcoin mine on and off. Um, and these are things that uh, PJM is very receptive to and, and has been working to kind of catch up to to ERCOT on a, on a few of these programs. So I think PJM, the Pennsylvania area, they've got unique issues. Um, you know, that's coal territory. There's a lot of coal refuse um, that is, you know, very polluting, a lot of rain, water drain off. They have uh, unique issues at PJM that folks like Stronghold are taking advantage of. And um, it's kind of a win-win where they're cleaning up coal refuse burning it, supplying on-demand power to the grid, and mining Bitcoin. So um, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on PJM alongside ERCOT. Can you speak to what's going on in Canada with mining? We've had guests on that have talked about some of the provinces being, being pro-Bitcoin or understanding it, and some of them uh, being anti-Bitcoin to maybe even a detrimental, uh, a detrimental force against Bitcoin adoption in the country. Um, so can you speak to Canada at all? Sure. So um, I've spent uh, two years mining in Quebec uh, around 2015, 2016. 
Um, and the issues that I saw are when the government changes, the regulations change very quickly. And so you can have this two-year cycle of the this one party likes things and then another party comes in and they change everything. So, you know, I, I when I was mining in Quebec, I had my power rate changed three times. I had all the other ancillary things that had to be going into that changed two times. I had the tax structure changed twice. So the... Um, in, in Quebec specifically, that seems to be an issue. You'll have a group that's very pro Bitcoin and a group that that isn't. So there's there's been that that struggle. Um, I know that they've had their own issues um, up in uh, in Alberta, uh, but in some places like northern Canada, like Goose Bay, Labrador, these places, they are very pro and they have been pro. So there's a good amount of hash rate that is in places like Goose Bay or North Bay or uh, Labrador in general. They have a lot of hydro going on uh, and it's cold and, and it's a big source of jobs for these people. So there's a lot of skilled labor up there, but there's not a lot of work, especially in the winter months. But in the winter months, you know, if your intake gets snowed in, you've got people out there doing work. So um, Canada is a unique place where it's... Uh, there's pockets of interest, but those pockets tend to shift around what political party is in power at the time. Are you involved in immersion mining at all, Marshall? Yes. Currently, uh, I help operate one of the largest in the world. Okay. So can you tell the audience about um, immersion? We've done a little bit on immersion uh, and the maybe the advance in technology from the, the shoe boxes as you describe them, but talk to us about immersion. What are your thoughts there? Is it a, a huge part of the future for Bitcoin miners like yourself? Yeah, immersion is really interesting. I would say it's not suited for every location. The things that immersion are good at are power density. So if you have a small area, but you have a ton of power available, that's a good way to, to run it because it's able to pull the heat off the machines quite quickly. Uh, as well as in a place that could be very dusty or very hot. So, you know, you got companies like Marathon doing a large immersion deployment in Abu Dhabi. It's hot, it's arid, and immersion is perfectly suited for that. It's dusty, there's sandstorms all the time, and that helps insulate and protect the miners as well as more efficiently get rid of the heat. Um, you've got uh, places that are very humid, like in Texas. That's a really good place to run immersion as well because, again, outside of all the cooling efficiency gains, you're getting a lot of insulation from the environment. So it keeps the machines fresher longer. You don't have to deal with corrosion. There's a lot of miners, for instance, in Houston that are battling uh, corrosion on the machines just because it's humid six months out of the year. So there's there's a lot of benefits outside of just the cooling aspect of, of it. Um, you've got big companies like uh, Riot doing a lot of immersion as well. So it's a big learning curve and the CapEx uh, is more intense, but the OpEx savings, if you have the right software to go along with it, can be quite massive. Is the CapEx uh, a hurdle making mom and pop not really have access to immersion? Uh, or is that a, a cutoff that you might, what's the minimum CapEx in a, in a facility maybe? Well, I would say that um, maybe two years ago, I would have said yes. However, there are some people uh, facilitating uh, what we would call a prosumer, you know, somebody who really wants to mine effectively at home. There's companies like Fog Hashing that'll sell you a one unit immersion system with a very small dry cooler you can just put outside. Um, that CapEx is a little bit more, but it's silent. 
and you don't have to worry about, you know, your neighbors asking, is there a jet plane in that guy's garage? What's going on? So, um, again, if it, if it fits for your own space, you know, I, I call it the wife factor. The wife factor is a, a big one in your life. Immersion might be a good fit for you. Excellent. And where's this facility that you mentioned that you're involved in? Uh, it's about an hour north of Austin. Okay, so can you talk about the facility you're involved in? Is it a uh, something joint with a company that we might know or private hands? Yeah, yeah. sure. So it's it's a, it's a company uh, called Rhodium Mining. We've got two sites. Um, it's 200 megawatts of immersion and 25 megawatts of air across those two sites. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite an operation for sure. We partnered with Shell to... Uh, you know, custom makes some nice fluid for us, and it's uh, it's going well. And the fluid, uh, technically speaking, can you describe it? It's petroleum based. How what it, what's in that, and who can manufacture sure. that kind of uh, fluid? So there's two groups of fluids. There's ones uh, manufactured mostly by like Exxon, for example. It's called a poly alpha olefin, a PAO for short, and that is derived from petroleum. Uh, Shell's product's a bit different. That's called a GTL product, and it's a, a synthesized molecule. Um, they call it a, a gas to liquid. It's kind of a, it's a synthesized hydrocarbon. So they're they're fundamentally two different camps, um, and it just depends again on your on your application. If you have high flow rate, you might want to pick another one. If you have, you know, the design constraints of you know, uh, turbulence, you might want to choose a different one. So there's generally two fields of camps. You've got the GTL molecule and you've got the PAO. Molecule. And how much does it cost you, let's say, relative to power? How much of an input is it? Yeah, sure. So the nice thing is it's a generally a one-time input. It's not an op ongoing cost, assuming you can maintain the fluid quite well. You know, if you've got a microfluidics engineer on staff that can help you maintain the fluid, um, then it's just a one-time input cost, and it's kind of just a, a sunk cost at that point. You don't have to really change it except, you know, maybe every four or five years, something like that. So it's um, it pales in comparison to the to the um, the opex power, those kinds of things. I hope uh, this reminds people that Bitcoin is sometimes just the best teacher. We get to learn about things we had no idea we would be uh, learning about. Is Bitmain a risk, Marshall, in that they produce the fastest machines in the world and the uh, it's concentrated in terms of the production? Does it worry you? Is it something that is on your mind? Great question. Um, I would have said maybe three years ago, uh, yes. However, there have been a fair few new market entrants, especially this year, um, that have very bona fide backgrounds. So um, there's a group called Chain Reaction. Um, they came from a company called Mellanox, which they sold to NVIDIA for like $4 billion. Those guys are for real big time engineers, and they've got a machine coming out. You've also got another company called Aradyne, similar background. They've IPO'd like two uh, silicon companies. They're out of San Jose. They're for real bona fide engineers, and they have their own product that's launching this year as well. Uh, MicroBT, um, also known as What's Miner, have some new technologies coming out as well. So uh, I'm very hopeful for the future. I think competition is always good. Um, and, uh, you know, the one place that Bitmain really falls down is their after-sales support. It's kind of uh, non-existent, most would say. And that's something that, you know, MicroBT is very good at. So it's a give and take. You, it's not always about the most efficient machine. It's also about pricing and 
you know, the, the additional support you may or may not need going forward. So um, at this point, I'm very uh, happy with the existing landscape. You know, Intel came in for a bit and uh, since have passed off their chips to Block. They're going to be coming out with a machine as well. And those guys are spearheaded by a, a very competent uh, engineer. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of comp competition coming into the space, and I'm very excited to see it. And can you speak to the origin of the chips themselves? Because we heard someone talk about micro BT, but say in reality, it's mostly American assembly that we're talking about. We're still reliant on chips from Asia. So can you talk about the foundry level uh issue within bitcoin mining and is that a concern to you as well sure so if you want the latest and greatest most efficient silicon produced on the planet you've got to go with tsmc taiwan semiconductor now they've got two different facilities that are predominant they have more than that but the two biggest ones are there's one in thailand and there's one in taiwan now these are mostly when the new latest and greatest like right now three nanometer comes out those are all captured by Apple first. So the newest iPhone and M1 chips are going to be built first. They're going to get all the kinks worked out with Apple. Then after that, you're going to have companies like AMD and Intel and Qualcomm. And in that small mix, you might have some Bitcoin chips as well. Now outside of TSMC, so Bitmain's all TSMC. Ardyne is all TSMC. Um, and I, I'm not sure if Chain Reaction is or not. Um, but their, their competitor is Samsung. And so Samsung's got fabs in a few different countries, and they're building one in Texas as well. Um, they're not as quite as cutting edge as TSMC. I'll say they're close second. Uh, and Intel's new Israeli fab is going to be a, a third place, and hopefully they can catch up. The um, I don't believe it's a concentration risk just for Bitcoin mining. I think it's a concentration risk for the world. So that's why you're seeing this China, Taiwan kind of standoff with everybody watching. Um, if Taiwan, if TSMC were to be co-opted or, or um, you know, have issues and where Americans or any other company on the planet can't get chips, um, that's going to be a bigger issue than not having enough Bitcoin miners or, uh, you know, anything else like that. Now, the, the, the linchpin in that whole thing is a company called ASML. Now, ASML makes the machines for TSMC, and those machines are very expensive, 500 million a piece, um, and you've got to be like whitelisted to buy that machine, right? So there are companies in China trying to make their own silicon. I would say they're probably a decade behind. Um, there are companies in the States as well, but all that kind of comes coalescing with ASML and whether or not you're able to procure an ASML machine. And, so, and forgive my ignorance, ASML is a company based in which country? Yeah, they're Dutch, okay. I believe. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so ASML is the company that makes the lithography machines that that make the wafers, which become the chips. Um, and, and it's not just ASML. In order to get the optics just right, they mostly partnered with Zeiss, which is a Swiss company, I believe. Uh, so Zeiss and ASML and some of these other providers, the state of the art for these machines is insane. They are, in order to get the wavelengths right for the lasers they use, they're blasting 10 particles 
60 times a second or something crazy. So the, the state of the art of ASML is mind boggling and nobody's going to catch up to that anytime soon. So it's, uh, it's multifaceted. So I'm not too worried about TSMC concentration risk. Um, I would say there's much bigger worries um, as far as like, you know, if, if Apple can't get their chips made or if, you know, you can't get the airbag chip made for your car, those are much more systemic risks, I think, uh, than, than not getting the Bitcoin chips. Made. Right. So Taiwan Semiconductor, essentially, the risk there is not it does not apply exclusively to Bitcoin and it doesn't even really right. hit your radar in terms of That's right. its global importance. Uh, Marshall Long, fantastic insight from around the world, truly. Uh, what a journey we took through Asia, United States, uh, Europe, Taiwan, chips, ASICs, and uh, pools as well. Marshall Long, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. Please tell people where they can find you and what you're up to. You can find me on Twitter. It's at OGBTC. Thanks so much, Nick. All right. Thanks a lot. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by River. Go check them out today. River.com slash TBL for a Bitcoin only exchange and a great experience. River offers a DCA feature where you can stack sats without any fees. They offer Lightning Network withdrawals. So get your Bitcoin off of the exchange using Lightning Network instantly. And also the most important thing about River, guys, they do not use a third-party custodian. They have a multi-sig storage solution so that your Bitcoin, once you purchase your Bitcoin using River, is not stored using a third-party custodian. River has control of that Bitcoin using a multi-signature solution. And what's more, they suggest you get your Bitcoin off of the exchange and into your own pockets. So go check out River today. Mm -hmm.